Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Cure, cannabis used for research and education. The medical industry is steadfastly looking to help millions of patients that suffer from injuries related to repetitive motion, sports, trauma, and many other orthopedic injuries, as well as skin disorders, mental disorders, cancer, and osteoporosis, to name only a few of the other underlying conditions that billions suffer from each day. On average in this country, we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day. With the cost of pharmaceutical medicines increasing, patients deserve natural alternatives that are not only more cost-effective, but also safer for them and society. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing a therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website at www.curemich.com. Cure. Cannabis used for research and education. Welcome to On The Verge. Today's special guest. We get to talk about wine today. I'm so fired up. But the first thing you're going to ask when uh, we bring him on is, are you sure he's not talking about Guinness? (laughs) (laughs) Joining me today, Jerry Keogh. Jerry, how are you today, buddy? Very good. Thanks, Virgil. So tell me. What was the bottle of wine that spiraled you into this chase, into the wine world, the wine travel, and all the cool things you get a chance to do? I think um, probably the most memorable one at the very start of my career was when I emigrated from Ireland to America in 1993. My brother-in-law gave me a bottle of 1982 Obreon, which to this day is one of the top wines ever made in Bordeaux. And um, he said, this is really special. And I was like, oh, Grant, it's just another bottle of wine. And then I started researching it and researching it. And I went, okay, so one, um, and this probably won't go down very well with your crowd here, but (laughs) one Monday night Packer game. um, And it was probably about 1997. So I was drinking it way too early. I took it out and I drank it and it was, I, it sort of exploded and it exploded really my, albeit I was in the wine business already, mm. it really exploded my interest in wine as opposed to just selling wine. There's something about wine that is so special when it comes to <clears throat> the environment with people. Like there's wine and food do something to an evening that <clears throat> not necessarily beer and food or whiskey and food do. Yeah. It cur- there's a little bit of family. There's a little bit of science and there's a little bit of art all put together. <clears throat> excuse me. That makes it feel different. <clears throat> when you've tasted wines around the world, what are some of the moments where you, you were, it's the food and wine and the people combination that, that strike you as the reasons why you're in the business today? Well, I always go back to a, a statement that um, uh, the English food writers who are notoriously brutal on restaurants 
And there was one guy, I can't remember his name, said, you know, if, if the food starts becoming more important than the people you're having dinner with, you're having dinner with the wrong people. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but uh, regarding wine, I mean, I would say to specifics, it's d- different, but I would, s- I would say possibly some of the, there's two. The great meals that I've had in some of the chateaux, Chateau Papelement in Bordeaux and Pessac, um, where it has been an amazing round table with, you know, full-on crystal, etc., and 10 different, um, uh, 10 different courses with 10 different wines from, you know, eight different vintages, etc., etc. That's yeah. cool. But I would say on the other end, and um, when we were talking about this before, on the other end, I would say sitting with families in small chateaus, either Chateau Chuli, which uh, you can get here in Tennessee, mm. um, which is uh, friends, uh, two, two ladies who make the wine, who have been doing business with my family in Ireland, they're in the wine business in Ireland, and with, with me here, um, and just having the most amazing meal of wines that are not that expensive, but it was just a combination of it was a it was a um, it was an evening by their little s- small swimming pool in a little ad house with myself and my girlfriend and the the mother the father and one of the daughters and it was just incredible it was food from their garden everything wow. was fresh and it was wine from their cellar and the wine is is a retail wine of nineteen dollars. Wow. Yeah. So those they would be the two. You know, uh, I've had, I, I don't like to say, sound like, but I've had a lot of them just because I've been lucky enough to go to these countries and and uh, taste and and eat. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm honored to have you on because the the bottle of wine that spiraled me out into <clears throat> like deep un, deep love and wanting to understand the nuances and the the things that separate the the great Bordeaux wines from other types of Bordeaux blends from around the world mm-hmm. was a 1990 Latour. <clears throat> and to try to tell people what's in that nose and palate, it's like it takes an hour because it was ever-evolving. And it's the most powerful wine that I think that I've ever had. I was just did a podcast with a gentleman who loves wine but doesn't know much about it, but I th- it's a very popular question I get throughout because I ask about wine nearly every show. What makes the big five or big six so different than maybe a Joseph Phelps insignia out of Napa Valley or obviously there's some, some super, like some of the super Tuscans and or the, the, the better Bordeaux blends all around the world. What makes the difference? Well, I, I think that it goes... So you're talking about the first classified growth, yes. right? And, and the, our, the origin of the 1855 classification was actually not really to do so much with quality per se, but it was to do with who marketed their wines the best, who, you know, who was most mm. well-known. It was quite a political kind of thing. Yeah. And it has remained that well. It was originally four, now it's five. But because uh, Mouton was, a, was a, a late entry in there. But um, I think what it is, is a combination of history terroir that you know the the fact that one vineyard over here to 25 you know to 25 meters over here on the other side are completely different and it's it's just and also it's it's the i mean terroir includes climate yeah so you don't have you do have intense heat but it's it's a always a gamble every year in bordeaux um but i just think it's really the terroir the land Mm. uh, the way they cultivate and what's interesting about Bordeaux as well, and I, and I always refer to this, is that when you look at the alcohol content in Bordeaux, okay, um, you will find that in 
Mouton or a lot of these, it's 12.5% to yep. 13%. When you look at Super Tuscans, our California wines, I, a lot of them are like 14 Mm. sometimes up to 16%. And that really changes the dynamic of a wine, obviously. Sure. Um, so I just find that sometimes when you... Well, you, you know, in, those, in the top five, you're looking at power and elegance, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So the power of the wine, the depth of the wine, the ageability of a wine. So you, I don't know when you drank that 1990... Mm, 2005 or six. Okay, so that's when it was coming into its true maturity. Mm. What you'll often find, and I, and I have to say, I haven't drunk a huge amount of California wines because I've always sold imports. Yeah. But what you'll find is the ageability of these wines and what happens to them as they get older. I talked about the, Ob- uh, the Obreon earlier on. I drank it way too early. Mm-hmm. I could probably drink it now. Oh, yeah. And I would find much more going in. The, 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 um, the strata of, of uh, the nose and the different sort of uh, things that you get out of the wine are remarkable. It really is. Right? It's not just a big power. It's powerful, but it's elegant. It is just this underlying beauty. That, and there's a history to it. And if you know what you're drinking, yeah. you, I mean, people get a little bit um, you know, carried away, I, I think. But when it comes to that, it's valid. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, 100%. Yeah. And to me, one of the things that I'm looking forward to when my kids are out of school yeah. is wine travel and going to places yeah. and doing like tastings, but seeing the, the, the vineyards and the chateaus and all of those. And I love Bordeaux is my favorite wine. And, but I really love Italian wine mm-hmm. and I really love Napa Valley and I love Pinots from New Zealand and Burgundy, obviously. Yeah. But I love New Zealand Pinots. Yeah. Where are the, some of the coolest places you've been and places that you could recommend for like the whole package of food, wine, and history? <clears throat> well, going away, obviously Bordeaux, because I'm there for two weeks a year, at yeah. least. Um, and they are getting better at agritourism. I mean, Napa Valley really has it down, yeah. right? The tasting rooms, and boom, and you're in and you're out. And it's kind of, I mean, Sideways really was uh, showed that, right? Yeah. Bordeaux was now, you're like, we, we have to make appointments, and it's very much a big deal. You couldn't go with the weekends, that kind of stuff. They're getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, my favorite trip that I ever had was four years ago, uh, when myself and my girlfriend w- went for her birthday, we went to Northeast, went to Piemonte and Barolo, uh, mm-hmm. we stayed there and we had the most amazing trip. Um, we, we flew into Milan, drove to, um, down to Barolo, stayed there for three days, and then we went up, and we went up to we went up to Lake Garda, stayed there and across, and everywhere, of course, which drove her, I think, a little nuts because it was her birthday, um, was everywhere was vineyards, and we went and saw people and the families, etc. To me, Italy, because I love Italy, yeah. is is um, is absolutely fabulous, and in that for that because it's gorgeous, yeah, um, and and it's such a different every area is tiny, you know. There's there's you know Bordeaux is very easy to understand because there's only really you know, six, you know, 10 grapes that are involved. In Italy, there's over a thousand grapes. So you'll get a a little bit of a sampling of everything depending on where you're going. And the same grape grown in Piemonte is grown up in northeastern Italy, but it's a a totally different uh, grape. It's a totally different name, but it's the same grape. Yeah. Uh, Different wines, but exactly the same grape. Wow. So that's fascinating to me. Yes. That is probably one of my favorite things about wine is how the same, almost the same clone in some respects. Oh, yeah. From all different parts, that could be totally 
totally different. We talked about Pinot Noir, right? <coughs> I mean, when you talk about Pinot Noir from California and Pinot Noir from New Zealand or Pinot Noir from Oregon and then Pinot Noir from Burgundy. I mean, the, 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 real, the two comparisons really are Oregon and Burgundy. Yeah. But they're the same grape, basically, oftentimes the same sort of rootstock and uh, totally different wines. Totally it's, different It's wines. breathtaking. And I think, that to me, most people... <clears throat> Most people get to Pinot last. Yeah. You know, it's like it's either a Shiraz or a Cabernet yeah. up front. Yeah. And then they dabble around in the blends and then they find something else they like and they might even head toward food wines like an Italian wine. Yeah. But then, <clears throat> for whatever reason, somebody gives them a really good Pinot and it totally changes the way yeah. they view wine because they've been drinking power for so yes. long. And then yeah. Pinot comes in there and, and hits you on the soft side right. a little bit. And yes. It's much like <clears throat> in the movie Sideways. Uh, he did a great job of describing the nuances of Pinot, and I thought, yeah. like to me, that was the movie that got me thinking about Burgundy and all the great, all the great Pinots. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. When most people, I'm, I also find, can't distinguish the difference between the left bank and the right bank, <laughs> and what makes like Petrus and Lapine and all the great Pomerols and the the Merlot side yeah. of the of the river. <clears throat> what makes the differences there, and why is Merlot so much better on the right, and Cabernet so much better on the left? Well, it's the climate, <coughs> right? Yeah. Is yeah. Uh, that the right bank is uh, much more? I mean, the, you I mean you basically said it, right? So the the left bank tends to be so the Margos, the um, San Estefs, etc. Tend to me are the, say the Medoc, yeah. Tend to be ca- Cabernet heavy, right? Because it's yeah. it's uh, it's later ripening, okay. Uh, although with and they talk a lot about this and whether one believes it or not, that, you know the climate change thing is a making a big effect. They're starting to grow more Merlot on the left bank, and they're also replacing uh, Merlot on the right bank with more Cabernet Franc. So that's what I that's what I love yeah. about. Uh, and we can go into the sideways movie again, but that's what I love about um, the right bank is that not only geographically or topographically is it more beautiful. Yeah, because it's basically like comparing. I would like to say, you know, um, going towards Asheville and uh, then you know the middle of Illinois, because it's just flat on the left bank, and the right bank is, as you know, is completely undulating. And, yeah. You know, um, San Emilion's up on a big hill, um, so you find there that the inclusion of Cabernet Franc that just gives it a little bit more depth with the Merlot, and Merlot is much maligned. I love it. Yes. Absolutely super wine. Um, but that, that's your basic difference. And you have that, uh, I think, with, I mean, you talked about Le Pain and, uh, and Petrus, which are breathtaking wines. But there's another sort of strata coming out from there. Pomerol is a very, very small area. And they make some of the greatest wines you'll ever taste. I mean, just it's it, it, they're so for being forty minutes apart driving yeah. from the city of Bordeaux, just I'd say Margot, maybe forty-five minutes to there. The completely different wines. They might as well be from another world. No kidding, right? I mean, it's just incredible. And San Emilion then is there's it's a much bigger area, but you get some fantastic wines from the you know from Pavi to you know Tetrarotabuff to these wines that are just. You taste them and you go, Mother of God, how did this happen? Yeah, I had a, yeah. an Oson, which was oh, God. staggeringly yeah. good. <laughs> I wasn't quite prepared for how good it nope. was going to be. No, it, <clears throat> that can be quite austere. And it, you have yeah. to, it's, you know, Ozon is one that you really, you, you have to have it, you can't have it early because it's quite austere. Yes. And Pavi is a little bit like that, but they're, they're stopping, they're starting to use 
less new oak, which can cause that. Mm. But if you go down the hill of ozone, right at, right at the bottom of the hill, and on the, on the road, the first chateau on the road into Saint-Emilion is one called Chateau La Gaffaliere. And it's right there. You can see ozone from the, the back of the winery. And that's a wine that all, it's on the same hill. Similar terroir, a little different, a little different aspect on it. But you will get for, you know, one-eighth the price, you'll get a fabulous wine. Oh, that yeah. You can drink a lot earlier than mm-hmm. ozone. One of the, my things, favorite things to talk about is I would say in the last 10 years, Bottles of wine that would cost fifteen to twenty-five dollars have increased their quality significantly, hundred percent, and really kind of hammered. And I would have, that's what I'm interested in. They've made it hard to buy the fifty to seventy-dollar bottle of wine because the fifteen to twenty-five dollar bottle of wine is so close to that quality. Yeah. It's like a two for one or a three for one mm-hmm. buy. Yeah. How are how did that come about? The wine making processes get that much <clears throat> better, and two. What are these companies doing that we're kind of playing the middle of the road when it comes to pricing in their in their bottles? How are they combating the much higher quality fifteen dollar bottle, but knowing that they're not Aubryon or or yeah, Margot? Of crazy. Um, I think that I mean you you, you said it. Uh, what's happened? I think for me, two things have happened. One is technology, okay, and it's and then secondly is the younger groups of people and the advisors, the Michelle Rolands and stuff like that, have gone around the world and have seen, you know, when Bordeaux, uh, you know, I'm 53, right? So when I first tasted Bordeaux, it was maybe the 1983 vintage, 84 vintage, um, and up to 86, as I mentioned, my family's in the wine business. Mm-hmm. And it was super austere. It wasn't, I mean, it was just, it would tasted like it was fine and it would need some years. What they've managed to do in the vineyards, right, is, uh, you know, achieve, you know, with, through achievements in the vineyards and also in, you know, learning about vinification. Yeah. You know, um, and the, that, a lot of that comes from the younger, the younger people taking over. Mm. Now, unfortunately, in Bordeaux, and I, I tend to talk a lot about Bordeaux because that's what I do. Sure. But um, you're finding that because of the tax laws in France, et cetera, and the inheritance laws. A lot of these chateaus where the, where the parents, you know, die or whatever they decide, you know, the, the family can't afford to inherit it. Or they've got to pay. And I don't really know what the laws are. I've been told several times, yeah. usually over a dinner, so I can't remember. <laughs> but, um, you know, you've got the... So you've got the Chinese coming in and buying, Americans coming in and buying them. There's 15,000 chateaux in Bordeaux, give or take. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you always have to remember that with Bordeaux. There's, there's a lot of different things. So... Going back to what your original question, um, th- because of that, so you used to say, okay, the petite chateaus or the entre de mers for white, right, are fine. Like they'd be $10 or $15, whatever. Um, and then you had this, then you had the, you know, the, the second growth, the Coast Astronelles, okay, which were up around the, were, no, I'm saying were in the $50 <coughs> range. And then you had the top ones. Mm-hmm. If you really look at Bordeaux, and people say, well, Bordeaux is very expensive. Uh, yes, the top 30 are, say the top 25 are. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, because of what you were talking about, this improval in, uh, improve, improvement in quality, that they've come, gone, up, gone, gone up a little bit in price, but their quality level has spread up. So to be honest with you, people talk about California wine and everything. And my boss, who's a very funny guy in France, which is funny in itself, <laughs> but he goes, he goes <clears throat> in Bordeaux, at that you know, $25 to $40 range, you can get the most amazing wines. Totally, totally different. This, you know, they spread uh, like from left bank to right bank. 
And he goes, and they're amazing. In California, you've got your $10 wines and you got your $15 wines. And then you've got your top of the top of the line. I mean, Screaming Eagle and all these wines are uber expensive. Yeah. Right? And also, and it goes to your burgundy thing, Bordeaux, like, you know, Mouton Rothschild produces 25,000 cases a year. <laughs> You know, yeah. Screaming Eagle doesn't produce that. And certainly Domain Romani Conti or any of these Russo or any of these do not yeah. produce that amount. So it's available. Hmm. Right? Yeah. But yeah, but I mean I think that you know what you can get for nineteen ninety-nine at Wine Chap, our our Grand Cru here in town uh, from Bordeaux is absolutely superb. And if it's twenty dollars and there's a two hundred dollar bottle of wine, another Bordeaux. Is that time, 10 times better? Absolutely not. No, absolutely, absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, no, not for, not for me or any, anybody, I think. Yeah. So I would think, well, can I, <clears throat> excuse me, when I ask golfers, where would they dream to play golf? <clears throat> they dream to play Augusta National. Yeah. Pebble Beach, Cypress yeah. Point. You know, and then, you know, if they go, if they're more around the world, they might talk about the sand belt in Australia or, you know, County Down, Port Rush yeah. in Ireland, right? <clears throat> in the wine world, it's Aubryon, Lafitte. <laughs> Mouton, yeah. you know, <clears throat> that whole group. You've been to these places, done tastings. How does it compare in that, in that Augusta National? Is it everything you thought it would be when you go to the, the, the very best of the best in Bordeaux? Yeah, I, you know, that's a great question, Virgil. Um, I smile <laughs> when you say those places because I would only dream to go and, <laughs> and even walk in the gates of uh, Augusta National, you know. Um, uh, and I, I think there's a similarity, right? Is that there are these beacons of light in in the wine business that you really want to go to, and and um, I would say, I, I would say going to Lafitte last year was quite interesting. Now you have to remember these are it's not these are production facilities like they are not just this romantic place out in the middle of nowhere. Um, I would tell you that Cheval Blanc was always my because Cheval Blanc truly is my favorite wine. No kidding, absolutely. You're yeah. like the fourth or fifth person yeah. that told me that. Oh, well, they're obviously very <coughs> well-educated people, but um, <laughs> but they uh, but Cheval Blanc to me, albeit a, an incredibly modern facility, it just is incredible because you're going there and you walk in, and it's basically family-run, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's oh, you know, it's owned by a conglomerate, but it's family-run. And you get the guy who's the head winemaker, kind of. It's usually done by a, a, a sort of a board of people, right? That tends not to be a winemaker in Bordeaux. Yeah. So that was amazing. Um, and then let me see what else. I think Mouton was cool, but I've been there loads of times. Yeah. Um, let me think. I'd say, yeah, there's another little one that's the next door neighbor to, to Aubryon. It's called Carm Aubryon. And that has a um, has a beautiful new. That's tiny, mm-hmm. new little chateau, uh, or new uh, winemaking facility that looks like a ship or a submarine. It's oh, very very cool. Wow. So yeah, it, it, so that would be yeah, it's amazing. Those ones, but Cheval Blanc would be number one by far. Talk to us about like what it's like when you go there. Give us like the you pull up in your car. What's what's it like as you go in? Has it you, you taste first? Is there a greeter there? What's the that's the process. Well, the process would be, uh, depending on where you're going, right? So the smaller guys, you know, um, so for Cheval Blanc, for, now we're, we're wine merchants, so yeah. we buy their wine. Um, and some Chateau, we, and there's 140 negotiants, right? Mm-hmm. Different companies. So we would be about number four, number five, I think. 
Um, so we are, you know, we're important to them. They're important to us. So it's very French, right? So it's can be quite formal, a lot of kissing. Well, not anymore, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so we'd walk up with my boss. Usually it's usually a couple of cars. Um, I'm fortunate enough that my, my boss, my direct boss is a family member that owns Chateau Dissin, which is a third growth in Margot. So he is old royal. He's the Cruz family. He's like old royalty in Bordeaux. So he gets a lot of respect. Mm-hmm. So we go up, you know, there's a lot of like the, you know, the glad, glad handing. Glad, so you walk in usually and uh, what you'll usually do is you'll go on a tour of the facility. Okay. And we'd all joke in the wine business. If I see another bottling line, I'm going to throw myself out the window, you know. So, but usually, but you have to understand that these people are very proud, especially the French. You yeah. know, I mean, the French are the French, and they're they're not changing anything about themselves. Nor should they. It's an amazing culture. Mm-hmm. But if you so you go in, and they're going to show you everything, and you show this and this tank, and how we're doing, and what modern improvements we're doing, and then so then usually, and if it's a very good customer, usually what will happen then is that you will go and then go do a tasting, and it, they'll usually pull out three to four to five vintages, and maybe their second wine or whatever like that. And then if you're lucky. You then go to the chateau, the actual chateau, and you sit down for a lunch. So it goes back to what you were saying before uh-huh. about then you get to taste the wines in a setting that's quite formal, but you know you've got waiters and everything pouring the wines and on, on some of the bigger, you know, higher class. I hate to use that term, but yeah. the more expensive wines, I suppose. Yeah. And then you do that, and you usually taste an old vintage. And the lunch usually goes on, and it starts off with the, you know, the, you know, the soup, and it goes to because we're in December usually. Yeah. You know, the main course, which is usually fish or chicken, and it's very small portions, you know. Mm-hmm. And then you will go on to the dessert, and then you'll have the cheese board will come around. So it usually takes about two hours. Oh yeah. And then you go, and you hopefully you're going to another <laughs> chateau a long way away, so you can take a nap. And then you go and you do it all. You know, you kind of do it all again, but you, without the lunch. So that's always kind of fun. We we limit our, you know, people love like California driving up and down high way, whatever it is, going to 10 places. I'm like, we don't do that. No, no, no. Because we'll maybe do two in the morning and two in the afternoon, max. Mm-hmm. Because then you get to spend time with them. You're not just running in, slamming wine and leaving. Yeah. That doesn't do anything. You want to build your rapport with them. You want to be able to sort of see things, find out little details that you can then come back to America and tell people about. You yeah. know, this guy was funny, or you know, the, there, to, with wine there always has to be a story. That's right, right. So if you're selling, if, if you're buying, I don't know, Mayomi Pinot Noir, there isn't really a story. Like it's owned by Constellation Brands, and you know, I mean, yeah. people love it and people buy it. But if you're if you're selling Chateau Chuli from Entre de Mer. And the two sisters make it, and they have another little wine that is only brought into Tennessee and Wisconsin, you know, that kind of stuff. So those kind of things are sort of fun. Yeah. And that's a much more interesting thing for a buyer to hear than, oh, this is 80% Merlot, this is 20% Cabernet Franc, and 12 months at Oak, who cares? Yeah. You know, so that's the end of the presentation. You know, but if you're if you've been to wine dinners, you'll always see the guys will go on and talk about it and talk about it and talk about it, like little, little fun stories. Yeah. Well, you mentioned before we got started that <clears throat> the thing that really keeps you in this is the people, yeah. the people and the Absolutely. relationships that yeah. you have. And it's interesting because I'm I'm thinking of this as like entertainment slash vacation, and you look <laughs> at it as business. It's 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 the wine business. It's the wine business. The wine business. So yeah. you're you're going in with a very different mindset yeah. than than I would be. But it's still like both of us would fall for the fact that it's. It's the people that make the experience, whether it be for you in the 100%. business world or me in the entertainment world. Yeah. It's what makes the, that makes the trip. 
Talk to us about some of the cool people that you've met, whether it be winemakers of the Chateau, owners of people that manage it, that have really sent you into this place where the passion is so great, it just keeps growing every time you go. Well, I think you go from uh, uh, you go from one extreme to the other. Um, two examples, okay. Mm-hmm. So I started t- t- talking about like you know such and such. There's a guy called Francois Micheville, and he is in Saint Emilion, and he makes right by Pavi, right by all the you know, fa- fantastic up on the plateau, and he has about seven hectares, so whatever that's fifteen is, sixteen acres of of land, right on a hillside, and he's one of the most eccentric people I've ever met in my entire life. Okay, so he is, he makes one of the greatest wines called Tetrarotabuf, which means hill of the belting, belching cow. Okay, and he got it kind of from his wife's family. He's been making wine. He makes, he makes three different wines, but this one specifically is um, uh, one that is, you know, is Merlot and Cabernet Franc blend. They make it in these vines that are so small, they look, kind of look like weeds close to the ground. Wow. Um, he picks everything in one day. So he's quite, really the story is that he's incredibly eccentric, I, I would say, I hope he's not listening, eccentric, <laughs> but he's a philosopher. Yeah. So the first time I ever met him, now he also had been doing business with my family in Ireland for years mm. and, and they still do. Um, but he, he, you'd walk in and he's got this beautiful old chateau. You've got to really want to find it in yeah. Saint-Emilion or outside. And uh, he walk in and he's got books everywhere, piled up everywhere. And he has a philosophy on wine that you're kind of go, I mean, it, it goes on for two hours, so you've got to be really paying attention. Yeah. So I've been there and I've been there with women and he's always, of course, paying much more attention to them. And I said to one, one time to somebody, I said, I mean, I can cut this short. He says, no, no, he can just keep going. This is so romantic. So he's probably the most eccentric, eccentric person I've ever met in the business, but also somebody that makes brilliant wine and is so engaging yeah. and wonderfully nice. Um, and then I guess it's my, my fr- a, 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 a gal who works in our office in Bordeaux, because we're based there in Bordeaux. Yeah. Um, her family uh, owns a small little chateau. Uh, I mentioned this to you earlier on outside of San Emilion, as I, as I like to say, it's about 10 miles or 45 minutes drive because it's like windy, windy roads and everything. You've got to really want to get there. Tiny, tiny little house. It built, original part of the house was built, I think, in the 15th century. So they've just kept added on, added on. And then you, out the back, you have basically a barn and they make about, I'd say they make maybe 10,000 cases. It's almost like subsistence, subsistence living, I would say. Wow. You know, you don't make a lot of money. Um, and then, uh, but you have this amazing, we had, I've had many meals there, beautiful lunch. They give you the best that they have. And they, um, you know, then Joe takes you, the dad takes you on a tour of the thing. It takes about tw- 10 minutes. You taste out a barrel, you taste all this. They have a single vineyard Malbec that is absolutely unbelievable, you know, that sells for, you know, $15 here. So think about it. You got it from this little village Hillefranc, yeah. all the way here, and it retails for $15. Wow. So think about that, right? With all the taxes and all this kind of stuff, and luckily it's over 14% alcohol, so there's no tariff, 25% tariff on it. Um, mm-hmm. So that, and they, and they are so proud and thrilled that you are there and happy that you sell their wine, and they're, and they're so welcoming, and they don't really speak English, uh, but they try. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I did, you know, as I said, I did eight years of French and still can't speak it. Um, 
but I mean, I can get by, but yeah. but that's the real beauty of it, Virgil, you know, yeah. and you just, you feel part of their family. Mm-hmm. And I literally have been there, I don't know, 10 times. And most recently last year when I, my, uh, myself and Nikki did a, a tour of Spain and France, we were going to a family wedding in France and we went there and stayed overnight and drank, it drank Joe's cellar. <laughs> and he's a beautiful cellar built down. He always bring him a bottle of California wine. Yeah. So last year, I think I bought him some Hansel and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I always like try to do that and bring yeah. a gift and, sure. and they love that. But that's the, that's the thing, going back to the people thing again, you know, and fast and just, just like their wines aren't expensive and they're, but they're really good and they're just, and they're fun to be around and you're sitting there and you're drinking and the next thing it's three in the morning, you know? <laughs> that's my favorite exactly. part. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh my God. That's my favorite you know, Take part. your watch off. Yeah. It's, it's to me. In the in the interviews that I've done, and people that are in, the, in other industries, but they love wine, mm-hmm. they're always fascinated about the comparisons of the big wines across the world, right? And so, the one of the most popular ones I get is, "What's the difference between, say, a Lafitte and a Joseph Phelps Insignia?" Which is basically not quite the same because there's all five go into the Joseph Phelps mm-hmm. Insignia, and, you know. It's mostly Cabernet Sauvignon and, and Lafitte, if mm-hmm. not all. Right? Yeah, no, mostly, yeah. Yeah, mostly yeah. all. But when you get a Bordeaux blend, it's like, to me, it's, it's uh, <clears throat> the, the wine is not as dense. It's a little more elegant. Yeah. And it's more, a little bit more earth first, fruit second, where, go to California. It's velvety, but it's like, it's a bigger, more, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like a thicker wine. Mm-hmm. And it's way more fruit forward. Yes. But as they age, they almost crisscross. Yes. And I find it very fascinating. Talk to us about why you believe that might be the case or what is the case of why they evolve in exact opposite directions as Bordeaux gets older, has gets a little more fruit on the nose. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> yeah, it happens a lot. And you go to the Rhone too, it's the same thing. That you will find that, I mean, talking about specifically about Bordeaux, is that you will find, and you know, albeit I've sold these wines for a long time and, and stuff, I mean, I haven't tasted every vintage or anything like mm-hmm. that. Some people have. I know many people that are in the business who go to, during Empremer in, in April, will go and taste the wines from Barrel, which I, I can't understand how you can do that. Anyway, because, <laughs> um, but yeah, they start off as this austere kind of closed-in wine. And then over time, and it depends on the, on the chateau, open up and then sometimes shut down again and then open up and evolve. And they go, and the color changes. When you see, I've tasted wines uh, like from 1966, 1967, and you see, and they're brown, but the fruit is beautiful. Yeah. So it's really an evolution of the wine. And again, depending on where it's from or whatever, and certainly those wines like the Latours, the Lafitte's, the, the Moutons to a lesser extent, Aubryon's, etc., will have this evolution that is remarkable. With California wine, honestly, I haven't tasted enough. All I know is that I tasted, I uh, wish I could remember the name of it, a 1985 something. And I was pleasantly surprised, but I've seen a lot and I've talked to a lot of people who talk about not the l- lack of ageability of these wines. I'm sure Insignia does have that. Yeah. Um, has ageability. But I, I always find, and, and this is, you know, this is a wine business thing we were talking about earlier mm. that we talk about the American palate, okay? Mm. The American palate likes what, you know, and in, in quotation marks, sweetness. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so that comes off oftentimes as being sweet, even though residual sugar is low or whatever. It's the fruit, and they love that. People love that. Also, California wine is a lot easier to understand because it's got Cabernet Sauvignon on the label. Yeah, you know, and and in France, people get very confused if they don't know it, they don't understand French, can't pronounce it. They just stay away from it, right? Yeah. But the wine you're talking about, the wine profiles. You know, I haven't tasted enough California wine that's old to really compare that. I've certainly tasted older Bordeaux wines and sure. o- older Italians. Sure. You know? Well, there's something about a Sassicaia that's just so <laughs> so spectacular. Yeah. Of all the great Italian wines, I always forget to think about when I'm getting ready to, you know, su- surprise people yeah. is Barolo. Ah, uh, you're love, talking my language. I yeah. love yeah. Barolo. Absolutely. But, but when when I have special guests come in, I'm I'm always leaning toward a Bordeaux yeah. or maybe something out of Napa Valley. And occasionally I, I might see somebody that wants is a Penfolds Grange yeah. or a runway yeah. guy. But I'm I was sitting there, I'm like, look in and it just happens that today is, I'm not I'm just looking for a regular bottle of wine. I'm like, son of a gun, I forgot the Barolos again. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to us about your experience with Barolo oh. and Barbaresco. That's a, those are two phenomenal wines. I'm glad you brought that up because I would say that if I'm talking about wines that I really like to drink, um, and I have a real, as I said earlier on, a love for the area and, and Italians. I mean, Italians are great, great yeah. fun, you know? Yeah. And um, so, um, I, and I'm glad you said Barbaresco too. It's like I, I buy my wine in Chicago from a friend of mine who mm-hmm. owns this uh, retail operation, and because I get a little bit of a discount. But so I get Bordeaux, right? That's fine. That's mm-hmm. I can get that. That's no problem. Um, but my, I buy my my Barbarescos and my Barolos and my Barberas and my Beaujolais. So mm-hmm. the fours. This is what I like to drink when I'm just drinking. Yeah. Um, because they're great food wines, all of them. Yes. Um, and just like the fact that. You know, uh, during that trip to Italy, we went to Chiretto, which I think is a fabulous producer. And they own a three-star Michelin restaurant called La Domo in Alba. And, we went, and they brought us there for lunch. And, I mean, it was the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my entire life. But just those, the beauty of those wines. But then to find the little producers mm-hmm. that are just small little guys making the most beautiful wines that, you know, Nebbiolo, that is just will blow your mind. And again, you go to this, it looks light. It's like Pinot Noir, right? Mm-hmm. It looks light. I, I call it the poor man's Pinot, Pinot Noir, yeah. right? It's the poor man's Burgundy. Yeah. Because still to this day, you can get the best, not the very, very top one, but you can get a great Barbaresco or a Barolo. Like I brought some Prodotori de Barbaresco uh, from my friend, like three bottles of it. It was $35 a bottle. Wow. Right? Or 30, 38, maybe. Uh, but, I mean, you couldn't get a great burgundy for that. You can't get, now with the tariffs in France, you can't get anywhere close to, like, just a basic burgundy for that price. Yeah. Right? So that, and the Barbaresco side, and Barbaresco, as you know, is very small, mm-hmm. but Barbaresco is just, it's similar, mm-hmm. but it's different. And I don't even know if I can, from, from if I taste them side by side, I just know that they're different. I can't. I can pick out the tar and roses in in Barolo. Yeah. But there's a subtlety to Barbaresco. It's completely different. No doubt. But I love that. And then never forgetting Barbera. Yeah. Because that I think really is the is the and Dolcetto. Like they're the two wines below those that are will introduce you at a twenty dollar range as yeah. opposed to paying fifty or forty. One hundred percent. Right. Yeah. And though the wine that I think blew my, though caught me the most off guard in my early uh, delve into. Italy was Brunello de Monticino. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the floral aspect of the nose on those, yeah. for whatever reason, it probably just went great with the food that I had. But the I've always found that 
Brunello's that that rose petal, the flower smell is so enticing when mm-hmm. you're when you're in a meal, and Brunello's phenomenal. But like literally, there's so many great regions in Italy that are just little tiny little nooks. Yes. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, that's the wine travel. You. I mean, you're, you said you're going to go to Bordeaux, but you know, if you're up for a, if you're up for a hike, you know, going to Italy and doing that, like fly into Rome, go up to you know Tuscany. Go up to Piemonte, go cut across, and like that kind of stuff. Over to Verona, which is one of my favorite cities in the oh, world, wow. and just like do that. It doesn't take very long, but you got to you know take a week, ten days, and do that if you can. And you see the total difference of from there, and sometimes if you can go down to the south, even to Sicily. Italy is a it's a, a tapestry of brilliant brilliant wines from all these different grapes that you would never have heard of. Yeah. You know, and uh, and make amazing wines. Like we drink, I would say uh, that when when we're together, we drink an awful lot of uh, of Italian wine. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I love it. It's so, <laughs> it's like, it's not like to me, it is definitely a food wine. 100%. 100%. 100%. You're not really going for the two o'clock a uh, glass of Barolo. No, you know, it's no. that's a they're a food no. one for sure. But you also got to remember, I, you know, we always talk about reds and everything. You must remember white wine. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, certainly at the moment, I drink a lot of rosé, especially now. That I mean, it's summer's over in Wisconsin, kind of. We yeah. Still have a case at home, but the rosé de Provence, right? And then also look at the fabulous white white Bordeaux that are unbelievable. Like Ecam 2018 was just released today. Yeah along with the Ygrec, which is their non-sweet wine. Um, and just from that to, I mean, the best wine with oysters, in my opinion, in my opinion, is either Sancerre or White Bordeaux. Oh, yeah. And good White Bordeaux. There's a lot of, a lot of not so good on the mm. very lower end, um, but in that, in that sort of, you know, 10 to $15 White Bordeaux, up to about 30 yeah. you will find amazing Sauvignon Blanc Semillon blends. In general, that's what they do. Yeah. Talk to my listeners about the difference between the Bordeaux style Sauvignon Blancs and what they get out of California because they're so different, <laughs> yeah. so different. Yes. And there are people, and what's most people don't know what is Sauvignon Blanc in Bordeaux versus just seeing Sauvignon Blanc on right on the label and out of a California wine. But yeah. I'm, I would love to get because I get so many questions about the names in. in Bordeaux versus yeah. the the grape in California yeah. that people should be looking for because I have a lot of people ask me about the whites in general, and I said, it's a great thing about being in the <laughs> wine business. You never there's not a lot of specifics because it's right. you know there's no absolutes. Mm-hmm. It's not math. It's like where there's an answer. But in, so in Bordeaux, I would say to you that <clears throat> most of the most of the white wine. Okay, so the the largest white grape in in Bordeaux is Semillon because mm-hmm. that's what they use to make Sauterne. Mm-hmm. In general, and Sauvignon Blanc planted. Sure. So, in general, what you will find in Bordeaux that the that you don't find a lot of hundred percent Sauvignon Blanc because it goes, you know, you you blend because you want to get the different dynamics of both grapes. So, it's usually a Sauvignon Blanc Semillon blend. Normally, a little bit heavier in Sauvignon Blanc, but Semillon gives a little bit of spice, a little bit of you know more acidity. Yeah, and it also mellows out the Sauvignon Blanc. Um, so the difference between the two, I think, is for me, if you were to take a same level of Sauvignon Blanc in, in California and in, Bord- in Bordeaux, there's a little bit more going on. Mm. If that's too general, or too, I mean, you just, the nose is different, um, and it certainly doesn't have that cat pee, 
New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc uh, yes. aspect, right? It's some of them can a little bit depending. Right. On the, they're very vintage specific, also. Unlike California, which tends to be the same all the time, I, mm. I think. I agree. Um, whereas with Bordeaux, because of the different vintages, great vintages like my that my friends Chateau Chuli. I mean, they lost fifty percent of their harvest last year due to hail. Oh wow! Right, so you've got that. Um, you've got a. It's a. It's a real roll of the dice. They harvest earlier, so it's okay. But I mean, their harvest is done now. Um, but you. But they. They make these wines that are so good. The acidity is so good. It's not heavy, but it's there and prominent to go with seafood. Um, uh, you know, any kind of chicken dishes and that. I sure. mean, that's a little generic, but certainly with seafood. Mm-hmm. You know, you will get the best oysters, the best seafood out in Cap Foray, which is a place that we went to last time, um, Cabane d'Hortense, which is all they do. You love it. It's, it's, like a, it's just on the bay of, in Cap Foray, and you go in, and there's little tables, and, uh, you know, and uh, all they do is serve one white wine. Bordeaux Blanc. It's Graville Lacoste, which you can get yeah. anywhere here, right? Yeah. Um, and oysters and snails and that. And that's mm. all it is. Wow. Nothing else. And you could just sit there. I mean, great pictures of us there. These gigantic platters. Not expensive. Or you can get beer too. But that's it. And, and it's a perfect blend with oysters and white Bordeaux. It's stunning. Mm, awesome. Yeah, right? <laughs> that sounds great. <clears throat> well, you're from Ireland. Yeah. And when I think of Ireland, I think of... My two great uh, PGA events that I did uh, with the Tennessee PGA used to go over and pl- we played like the, the South part with Old Head and LaHinch and Bally Bunyan and, and Waterville and Old Head. And Old Head is like Pebble Beach on steroids. <laughs> and then we finished second there. We got beat on the last day. It was a pro-am event. And we went back the next year and we played in the North. And it was so different. Uh, the weather, we got the bad end of the weather that year, too, and it, it can certainly blow hard in Ireland. Yeah. You play much golf when, when you were growing up, or <laughs> golf played any, any role in your, uh, in your life before or even today? No, um, I, uh, my father always said, to quote Mark Twain, it was a good walk, walk spoiled. <laughs> um, and it, he was much more the, you should be sticking your head in a book and not doing, uh, I, was, I was a rugby player. Uh-huh. So I, um, I was more into that. We didn't have a golf program at my school. It was, it's so funny sitting here in Ensworth. I walked up and I was like, oh my God, this is Ensworth University. Um, <laughs> but like, I went to all boys Catholic school in Dublin. And mm-hmm. so we had, you know, we played rugby or you studied and or both. And that was it. Yeah. Uh, we used to go to the pitch and put up the mountains, take the bus up. Would take you about forty-five minutes, and it was a terror. It was like on the side of a hill, so hitting seven irons and putters. That's uh-huh. all we did. Um, my brother was a very good golfer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he passed away about six years ago, and he was a terrific golfer, and probably was about a six or a seven handicap. So he uh-huh. said, uh-huh. Um, and uh, won the. He was in the army, won the uh, all army championship, etc. Things like that. Awesome. So that I only started playing golf in, when I came here. I was kind of forced into it. I'd avoided it hmm. in about... I, I was talking to somebody last night, actually, about it. I started... I was in the wine business, got in the wine business, and then somebody said, we're doing a... The company's having a competition. You're Irish, you must play golf. I'm like, I, I don't, but I'll play. So I went up, and we didn't really have golf carts in Ireland. Mm-hmm. You know, That's right. So, yeah, like, my brother would always make fun of me. I said, if it was 95 degrees, you'd want a golf cart, Paddy. So... Um, that was the start of it. And then I, uh, I started to play. I really got into it. And I love being... Uh, there's something about a golf course yeah. that is peaceful. 
And even if you're having a terrible round or whatever, that you know that you're with friends, again, that you like playing with, and you're having a bit of a laugh, and they're making fun of you, and you're making fun of them. And um, so that was really it. It was in Wisconsin where I started. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I've, I think I was telling you the other day that I've just recently started taking it up again uh-huh. after about a 15-year hiatus because I, I was traveling a lot with my job. My son was growing up. Sure. And um, so I didn't feel that I could make my now ex-wife a, a golf widow. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I kind of gave it up. But now I'm trying to get back into it again. And uh, hmm. It's being, uh, it is probably the greatest thing about COVID for me yeah. that I decided that that was what I was going to do. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's been fantastic. But I never got to play. Like you told, all, yeah. I know all these courses because people tell me all about them. Old Head, Old Head wasn't there when I went to Kinsale in, in 1985 when I was yeah. on leave from the army. Didn't, it didn't exist. Yeah. You know, um, uh, uh, Port Marnock was like where the rich people were, you know. Um, really? Uh, yeah, the K-Club didn't exist. That's right. Um, Adair Manor now, mm-hmm. which is where my grandmother worked as a training the, the women who made butter, etc. My grandfather was a harness maker there. Wow. Uh, yeah, so that's like my father was born in Adair. And uh, that, that was the Lord Dunraven. We would beat the grass and everything for the, for the pheasants when they were shooting. Uh-huh. You know, that kind of stuff. So that's, that, was the, that was a dare manner for me. Wow. But we went in and had a look there the other day, and it looks pretty, pretty nice. They have a lovely course there. Oh, yeah. very. Yeah. Well. That's the first golf course I played in Ireland. Really? Yeah, we landed, and that's in where Shannon? they, they had yeah. it set up to just go. Oh, that was our, our warm-up. Yeah. So <laughs> after a Could have done out, some fly fishing there yeah. too while you're at it. Yeah, they, they said it was amazing. Yeah, amazing. Amazing. So cool. So cool. So I remember one of my funniest stories. When I went there, we played Baltrayer County Louth. Yeah. And uh, the caddies didn't show up. On, oh. Right? Yeah. So we're on hold, and the head pro goes down into the town and goes into the pub. Yeah. And gets a bunch of people to come up and caddy for <laughs> us, right? So I'm with, I'm with a really fun bunch. And with the caddy that my buddy and I have is a 13-year-old kid. Perfect. <laughs> right? So he's drinking a Guinness yep. and smoking a cigarette. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> my buddy goes, hey, are you, is that a beer you're drinking? <laughs> he's, yep. <laughs> so, your mom know that you're drinking a beer on a Tuesday morning at 930? Yep. Yeah, yeah, are yeah. you sure? <laughs> I got it at me. Got it at my mom's pub. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So, so it's nine thirty. Yeah, he's already got a pint in him, and he's sure. just oh man, it was so much oh, fun. Yeah, yeah. that was love the Irish people. It was such a great time. They're a funny lot, all right. Yeah, they're it's 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 an amazing country that has had so much influence everywhere in the world. And you know, of course, we would probably say we invented golf, but obviously, yeah. didn't. but um, that you know, you've a, a country of when I was growing up so I left in 93 I think there were 4 million people living there you think about it it's half the size of, it's 38,000 square miles like it's tiny Yeah. and you think about it in 1845 there were 8 million people living there by 1961 it was about 2 and 3 quarter million because you either died or emigrated wow you know so yeah it's, it's, uh, it's an amazing place and a very positive people yeah you know really positive no doubt. I, I, it's really one of my favorite places I've yeah. ever gone, especially to, to play golf because there's so many great golf courses. Yes. Something that I didn't enjoy while I was there is the whiskey. I don't know what it is about Irish whiskey that it, that it doesn't work for me. Ah, you see, that's the thing. Is that you, you, uh, that's, that's unusual because that's what I drink. Yeah? But, uh, I, but talk to us a little bit about 
Irish whiskey and the differences between what separate it from obviously scotch and whatever. But I mean, at the end of the day, Irish whiskey has its is starting to gain a lot of popularity in the United States. Oh for yeah, sure. Oh yeah. Um, well, you know, it's not a it's not a topic that I'm hugely. Although I'm wearing a Slane golf <laughs> golf uh, Slane whiskey golf uh, sweater. Um, uh, Irish whiskey, uh, you know, I told a funny story about my mother last night, uh, who was very, as we like to say in Ireland, very fond of the drink. And uh, we had, uh, we went to a party one time and she said, son, get me a whiskey, would you please? And I said, I will, ma'am. So I went over and I got the whiskey and I was probably 12 and got two blocks of ice. I knew how she liked it, two blocks of ice, poured the whiskey in and uh, a little dab of water and brought it over to her sitting down. And I said, there you are, ma'am. And she tasted it and she goes, ah. She goes, no, I want Scotch whiskey. So I'm like, oh, okay. My dad would drink Irish whiskey. My yeah. mother would drink Scotch because that was seen as a little bit better. You know, mm. because back in my day, there was Powers, Paddy, and Jameson, right? That was, they were the real ones. Yeah. And if you're from Cork, you drank something. If you're in Dublin, you drank something. And, you know, and then you had the ones in Northern Ireland, Bushmills and Blackbush, which sure. as, as a rule, because of the troubles, as we like to call it, Irish people never call anything what it really is. The, war, the Second World War was the emergency, and, the, and the, the war in the north of Ireland was the troubles. Yeah. You know, so, um, you know, we didn't really touch that kind of whiskey uh, up there. And it was different. It was much yeah. more like scotch anyway. Yeah. Um, but obviously with scotch, and not with blended, but with the, with the single malts, you have that peatiness that pe- some people just don't like. I don't like it. Yeah. Um, I, I'll drink bourbon because if it's blend if it's in a cocktail or something. But yeah. on straight bourbon, I I don't like. Irish whiskey to me is is an easy drink, and I was surprised to hear you say yeah. that. You, it depends on the ones you drink, I suppose. It'd be, but the ones I Jameson's too sweet for me. I don't like it. It's, it's just the profile isn't so good. But there's probably two others, th- maybe three that I like. Uh, Redbreast is one, which mm. is stunning. Um, Slain, mm. which is. Um, uh, owned by Brian Foreman yeah. and the Cunningham family in, uh, just outside of Dublin, Slane County, Dublin. That's another lovely one. And then Tullamore Dew. So those three, but they're just so easy. I mean, probably a little bit too easy mm-hmm. to drink. Yeah, because I had, I had Jameson. Yeah, you know. And, and it didn't work yeah. for me. Are and you I, a bourbon drinker? Yes, I am. Okay. <clears throat> so I would say to try something like Slane mm-hmm. because it, it uses some casks. They bring over casks from Brown Foreman uh, and it's a perfect transition. It's in a square bottle, square bottle. It's a perfect transition from bourbon to Irish whiskey because it got, uses, I think it uses Jack, yeah, Jack Daniels bar- barrels. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, and neutral barrels, etc. So it's a really, it's a beautifully made uh, whiskey. I'll have to try that out. I should have brought you some. Oh, I, I love it. Through it. I yeah. love it. Well, the second half of the show is when we talk about the things you do to recharge your batteries. Because although what it is that you do <laughs> as work is fun for a lot of people, including yeah. me, we know that it's work. Yeah. When, when people recharge, they're usually doing things that bring a lot of people together in the same context or like-mindedness to enjoy things all together. Like, you know, soccer games, football games, mm-hmm. basketball games, what have you. What are some of the things that you like to do to fill your time when you're out? Is it is it mainly travel, or is it, what do you what do you like to do to recharge? Well, we, we, myself and Nikki do it. Would do a trip, usually a European trip, once a year. But you know, going back to what you said, really, my job is. I mean, it's yeah, you're selling wine, but the aspects of that are fine. You're dealing with people who are fun. Usually, yeah. you're dealing with restaurant. You're going to great restaurants. You're 
you know, you're, you're eating the best food that, you know, millionaires eat and you're drinking the greatest wine. I mean, that doesn't sound like a job to me, right? <laughs> um, I mean, it's kind of, don't tell, don't tell anybody. Um, but it is, I mean, it's, a remar- it's the only job that I know that it's, I, I, I call the wine business the last great business. We used to do a thing in Madison, Wisconsin, where I live, called... You remember the show Mad Men? Oh, yeah. We would do a lunch about once a month where we'd all go for lunch and wouldn't go back. We'd drink a martinis at lunch and everything. They were all guys from the wine business. Yeah. Because they're all just... Usually, they have... A, they have and I also always say, we're all failed something else, you know? <laughs> like a failed army officer. Not failed, but like you don't do it anymore. Yeah. Another guy's a very good friend of mine is a, was a science teacher. He was terrible at it. Mm-hmm. But he's now one of the top guys in Wisconsin in the wine business. So that kind of stuff. So, so do that. But how I, I like now that I've rediscovered golf, mm-hmm. even though it's uh, when you're golfing like I am, it's quite frustrating, but just you're there. So yeah. who cares? Um, and, you know, but travel, travel, work, and golf. Yeah. I would say those those three. Sweet. What What's your favorite movie that you've ever watched? Um, my there's a, that's a tough one. That's like asking your favorite wine, right? Yeah. Um, I would say because of with whom it was with, or with whom I was I was with whatever, um, was a bridge too far. Because I watched it with my father. I went to, it was the first movie I ever went to with my father. Oh, wow. Right? And he was, he was 46 years older than me. They, they had me. I was the last mm-hmm. in the crew. And just being able to spend time with him, even though we weren't talking, um, that was... And I remember that. And it was written by an Irish guy yeah. who, he knew, who, who he knew. And that was about the you know, invasion of Arnhem in World War II. Like, uh, um, my, and then my actual favorite movie would probably be... This sounds ridiculous. Just to make me laugh as bridesmaids, <laughs> right? <laughs> so good. And then, of course, the ever-present Shawshank Redemption. Yes, right. That's so another awesome. Movie. They would be kind of up there. Yeah. Favorite music? Oh, there we go again, Virgil. Um, if you go by decade, I would say certainly Cream, The Doors, mm-hmm. um, Blind Faith, uh, Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones. Um, then into sort of uh, a U2, obviously. Although it's very cool to say you don't like them in Ireland, you know. <laughs> Bono is, but I've seen U2. U2 was the first concert I'd ever seen. Oh, really? Yeah, 1979 in Dublin, and I can't remember exactly where wow. it was. 79, 80. You know, I went in, I was drinking pints at 14. It's just yeah. like your guy, right? <laughs> right? With Huey Mullen, who was a guy who was two years ahead of me in school, <coughs> and he brought me. And uh, then I saw Queen in, in Slane. Oh, how cool was in that? In 1986. And then that was great. But again, I had a few drinks. But um, uh, so that, and then I've seen you two a ton of times. I was lucky enough to see them in Pasadena, oh, um, in Chicago, in Madison. So I've seen altogether you two probably maybe seven times, eight nice. times. Yeah, which is good, you know. Greatest country you've ever been to was? Ireland. <laughs> <The one. laughs> I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, the first time I, one well, of the first times I met my girlfriend, we were sitting at dinner together. It was a business thing. And she was talking about her travels and she lived in London for a year, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay. And I said, did you not go to the greatest country in the world? She said, oh no, we went to Italy. You know, so, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. Um, I would say, uh, I mean, without saying, I mean, America, I think is the greatest country in the world. I mean, just the the power of it, and no matter what's going on at the moment, I mean, it's it's it'll always be grand, you know. Yeah. Uh, I hope. Um, Ireland's always my number one. I'm a dual citizen. 
Uh-huh. Right. So, and my son actually lives in Ireland now, oh, okay. uh, hoping to go to college. Um, so they're both sort of dual citizens, also my two sons. Um, but I, I have a passion for France that because of how much time I spend there and the and the difference between Paris and Bordeaux and the south of France and everything, just the difference of culture within a culture. Yeah, it's fascinating. The food. Yeah, that's the thing that I want to. And the, the things that so intrigued me about going there. Is it's like the combination. I haven't missed a meal since I was born. So I mean, I, I'm right with I don't, you. I don't shortchange yeah, yeah, myself. Yeah, exactly. But great wine and great food. It's like one of my favorite things to even think about, let alone yes, do. Yes, yes. I get so excited about it, and like to me, I, I can't wait for that like, that time in my life where I get to go go do that and experience that that wine travel mm-hmm. and the and like the food that's made right out of the garden. Like everything's like right there. In that region, which yeah. is so not usually America. Well, I, I'll tell a story to do with that was when, when Nikki and I were in, on this trip last year, we went, we were at Chattachuli and we were sitting out by that pool, that experience I talked about. And the mother, Mama, came up and she just had a plate of tomatoes. Not heirloom, but just big, big honking tomatoes that came out of her garden about an hour before, just with some salt on top of it. And I thought Nikki was going to lose her mind. I mean, and it was one tomato for the whole crowd. Wow. Right? And it was the taste of it. You know, when you have, like this time of year with tomatoes, like you're like, unbelievable. And that was like stunning. But just a simple tomato. Yeah. And how beautiful it can be with a lovely white wine and just, and it was like, it was like a big hug. You know, that's, <laughs> yes. what, that's what it is. And when, those things are like big hugs and you feel like you're really, and I'm a, as cynical as any 53-year-old guy. You know, I'm mm. like, I've seen it, I've seen this and that or whatever. But when you have moments like that and you just go, wow, this is stop you right in your tracks. You know? Yeah. Absolutely in your tracks. Well, how can how can my listeners find out more about you, Twins Bordeaux, and, and look at like the what you offer and how they can uh, interact with your company? <clears throat> I've been asked that question about 20 times. And uh, the, the way our business works is you will never see our name on a label anywhere mm-hmm. because we are the merchants in Bordeaux. We purchase and then we sell through an importer. So various different wines. But I mean, if in general, if there's two, there's two places where we do most of our business, which are Grand Cru, and the wine shop in in Nashville. Yeah. Right. So if you see fruit of the vine on the back of a Bordeaux label, uh, that's us because oh. that's our importer. Fantastic. Um, and uh, both of those stores are excellent. There's a really amazing wine community and wine knowledge in Nashville that yes. is it's quite extraordinary when you see what is done. You know, in these stores, and you see the breadth of selection. I spent a bit of COVID down here, and I went to both stores. But I went to Richard over at uh, at Wine Chap, and I went up to him, and he was standing at the door, an Englishman talking to an Irishman. You know, yeah. and uh, he, uh, I said, Richard, just mix me, mix me up something. And he came back with an extraordinary because you couldn't go into the store. He came back with an extraordinary selection or mixture of wines that were at the price I asked for. Where he, I mean, he knows me, but he doesn't yeah. know what I drink. I'll buy certain wines in there when I'm here that I can't get anywhere else. Um, but he put together this great selection. I was like perfect, and it was $140. I always get a little bit because wine prices, because the taxes down here are a little bit higher than where I am. Uh-huh. Um, but um, I, I was like delighted. That was, I mean, that's exactly it. So they're the places, and then in many, many restaurants in town. I would almost say the, the 
of the places that I've shopped, Grand Cru has the most incredible selection yeah. of wines that you can't find at the big boxes. But they do an outstanding job of wine yeah. buying. Well, there. Jason is is a very talented buyer, a very nice guy. Yes, and um, he. And that little room they have there, and it's an easier short store to shop, right? That's than right. Wine Shop or a lot of these bigger like grocery stores. Yeah. And there's always a couple of lads there willing to help you. And it's it's because it's small, they have to be very careful about what they choose, right? Is yeah. that, and I think that's important to remember. When you, and I think it's important for your listeners or whatever, to especially people who don't know that much about wine or looking to explore, you don't go to the grocery store. You know, you don't. You can go to Buds, or you can go to wherever. You can go down to see Paul Patel. You can, uh, you know, there's there's probably five or six stores in Nashville. And now I don't live here, mm-hmm. but I'm here all the time. But there's five or six stores in Nashville that have very, very, very well educated, smart, nice people who are willing to take you by the hand and lead you through the exploration of wine. Yep. And that's super. And and when you find one that you like. And this is very big in the UK and in Ireland. And is you find one that you like, you trust them. And they're not going to steer you wrong. And yep. they're not going to rip you off. And that. Whereas in, in, in grocery stores, you you're just looking at it. You're like it's, I mean, you see people all the time, like, like, the, like this vacant stare yep. into an aisle of wine. And they go, oh, I recognize Naomi, so I shouldn't be picking on Naomi so much. But, so I'm going to buy that. Yeah. Right, so as a, therefore, like every steakhouse has to have Mayomi on the list because that's what people understand and know, that's right? right? Yep. Um, whereas with with these stores, you know, Midtown, Wine Chap, uh, Grand Cru, etc., then you can you'll have somebody who will go, okay, I think you'd like this. You should try this. And people always want to be told what to drink. Yes. Right, and rarely are they disappointed because. What's so? What could be so bad? That's right. You know, I find the golf and wine are two very intimidating business <laughs> models. Yeah, and so there are people that are afraid to ask for advice on wine because they don't want to sound dumb. Just yeah. like people don't want to ask certain questions when they walk into a pro shop. Yeah, you know, do I do I get a caddy? Who do I ask for a caddy? Yeah, yeah. can I get a golf lesson? Stuff yeah. like that. They're, it's very intimidating. Yeah. <clears throat> that's the very important thing because Paul Patel, a good buddy of mine at Midtown, yeah. and when you know Tim Ralding, who was down at the Marsh House at yeah. the restaurant oh, yeah, downtown, yeah, too, so yeah. he's a good good buddy of mine yeah. too. <clears throat> you know, they're like, we're here to help, right? And but people are afraid to ask. And I think that's a really important point yeah. is to go find one of these stores or anywhere wherever you're listening. Yeah, <clears throat> go find a, a store that has got a great reputation, and you'll find out why they got a great reputation. Yeah, because they got people that are going to do anything they can to help you and steer you in the right direction mm-hmm. for the thousands of grapes that are out there from literally from one corner of the world to the other. Yeah, it's very important. Like, and I, I you know, I as I said, as I buy a wine wine from a very good customer of mine. And he, we talk about it all the time, how they're not, I mean, obviously, and it's a, it's a statement of the obvious, these people are there to help. They're not there to rip you off. They're not there to sell you stuff that won't, you won't like or whatever. They're there to really counsel you because that's what the, their reputation is for. One good review gets one like, one, one bad review, seven people are listening, you that's know, because right. they're only listening to try and you know, put other people down. 
So you, if you, you can find that, I mean, and, and the, those stores are all very different, right? When you, the ones you're talking about here right. in Nashville, you've got the small one, the Grand Cru, you've got the big, big wine store, and then you've got the, I mean, Paul's store is massive. Massive. And he's got any bloody wine you could ever want, right? Yes. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. And, and they're all good customers of mine, so I'll, I will, I'll say that. I have to say that. But, mm. you know, and, and uh, I found them very, very, on my level, and selling people something is a lot different than them selling you something. Um, so they're always incredibly fair. They, they try to get the best price from you, and they pass it on to their customers, which yeah. is great. Well, I can't thank you enough, Jerry, for one sure. for taking the time to come in here. Well, my pleasure. I'm on Just... my holidays. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you very much, and we'll look forward to seeing you soon. Cheers. Thanks, Virgil. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you, or check out their website, www.curemich.com. Cure, cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is produced by Chase Akers. If you've enjoyed the show, leave a five-star rating and write a review. Click subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a single episode.